Why do you follow Jesus? It's an incredibly important question that we all must answer, but I think a lot of us don't really know the answer to that. <laughs> Hi church, good morning and welcome to our church service. Today we're going to start a, a new series of lessons trying to answer that first question, why do we follow Jesus? And actually this new series is actually going to be the theme that we're going to be looking at for the rest of the year. We're going to be talking about what it needs to be rooted in Christ because we all know that, that we need to be, but what, what does that mean and why would that be so important is what we're going to try to learn over the next few weeks. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at this specific passage. So if you go in your Bibles, please, to the book of Colossians chapter 2. Our theme for the year is going to come from here, and our theme for the next few lessons also comes from here. Colossians chapter 2, I'm going to read for you from verse 6. It says, therefore, as you received Messiah Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, rooted and build up in him and established in your faith just as you were taught over well overflowing with thankfulness you see that 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 that's the passage that's what we're going to be looking at and that's why it needs to be important that we talk about this because paul says as you received messiah as you received the anointed one jesus as lord as king Paul assumes that you and I have submitted under the Lordship of Jesus. We are walking with him as he is the king of our lives. But let me ask you the question, why would any of us do that? Why would you willingly submit and surrender yourself under the authority of someone else? And this is a very vital question because if we don't know how to answer this, we might not stick around for the rest of our days. If we're just doing this because it's what seems better or it's what we were taught or because we're trying to avoid the bad place so we can go to the good place, I don't know if that's going to be sustainable enough. You know, that there's science that indicates that most of our decisions actually have to do with our why, our, our, our desires, our feelings, our emotion, our gut. And if our desire is not for Jesus, if our biggest why is not that we love him and desire him, I don't know if we're going to be rooted in Christ as we want to be. You know, I'm going to show you a video just now. It's from this guy named Simon Sinek. He talks about this idea called the golden circle. And, and he's a businessman, leader guy, trying to talk to people about business in this TED Talk. But he talks about a very important concept, not found in business, but found in biology. This reality that all of us actually make decisions with the part of our brains that processes emotions and feelings. And I want you to check it out because if what he says is actually true about biology, then it's going to be true about why and how we follow Jesus. So check it out. As it turns out, there's a pattern. As it turns out, all the great and inspiring leaders and organizations in the world, whether it's Apple or Martin Luther King or the Wright brothers, they all think, act, and communicate the exact same way. And it's the complete opposite to everyone else. All I did was codify it. And it's probably the world's simplest idea. I call it the golden circle. Why, 
how, what. This little idea explains why some organizations and some leaders are able to inspire where others aren't. Let me define the terms really quickly. Every single person, every single organization on the planet knows what they do 100%. Some know how they do it, whether you call it your differentiating value proposition or your proprietary process or your USP. But very, very few people or organizations know why they do what they do. And by why, I don't mean to make a profit. That's a result. It's always a result. By why, I mean what's your purpose? What's your cause? What's your belief? Why does your organization exist? Why do you get out of bed in the morning? And why should anyone care? Well, as a result, the way we think, the way we act, the way we communicate is from the outside in. It's obvious. We go from the clearest thing to the fuzziest thing. But the inspired leaders and the inspire or inspired organizations, regardless of their size, regardless of their industry, all think, act, and communicate from the inside out. Let me give you an example. I use Apple because they're easy to understand and everybody gets it. If Apple were like everyone else, a marketing message from them might sound like this. We make great computers. They're beautifully designed, simple to use, and user-friendly. Want to buy one? Meh. And that's how most of us communicate. That's how most marketing is done. That's how most sales is done. And that's how most of us communicate interpersonally. We say what we do. We say how we're different or how we're better. And we expect some sort of behavior, a purchase, a vote, something like that. Here's our new law firm. Uh, we have the best lawyers with the biggest clients. We, have, you know, we always perform for our clients, do business with us. Here's our new car. It gets great gas mileage. It has you know, leather seats. Buy our car. But it's uninspiring. Here's how Apple actually communicates. Everything we do, we believe in challenging the status quo. We believe in thinking differently. The way we challenge the status quo is by making our products beautifully designed, simple to use, and user-friendly. We just happen to make great computers. Want to buy one? Totally different, right? You're ready to buy a computer from me. All I did was reverse the order of the information. What it proves to us is that people don't buy what you do, people buy why you do it. People don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. This explains why every single person in this room is perfectly comfortable buying a computer from Apple. But we're also perfectly comfortable buying an MP3 player from Apple, or a phone from Apple, or a DVR from Apple. But as I said before, Apple's just a computer company. There's nothing that distinguishes them structurally from any of their competitors. Their competitors are all equally qualified to make all of these products. In fact, they tried. A few years ago, Gateway came out with flat screen TVs. They're eminently qualified to make flat screen TVs. They've been making flat screen monitors for years. Nobody bought one. And Dell. Dell came out with MP3 players and PDAs. And they make great quality products, and they can make perfectly well-designed products, and nobody bought one. In fact, talking about it now, we can't even imagine buying an MP3 player from Dell. Why would you buy an MP3 player from a computer company? But we do it every day. People don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. The goal is not to do business with, anybody, with everybody who needs what you have. The goal is to do business with people who believe what you believe. Here's the best part. None of what I'm telling you is my opinion. It's all grounded in the tenets of biology, not psychology, biology. If you look at a cross-section of the human brain looking from the top down, what you see is the human brain is actually broken into three major components that correlate perfectly with the golden circle. 
Our newest brain, our homo sapien brain, our neocortex, corresponds with the what level. The neocortex is responsible for all of our rational and analytical thought and language. The middle two sections make up our limbic brains, and our limbic brains are responsible for all of our feelings, like trust and loyalty. It's also responsible for all human behavior, all decision-making, and it has no capacity for language. In other words, when we communicate from the outside in, yes, people can understand vast amounts of complicated information like features and benefits and facts and figures. It just doesn't drive behavior. When we communicate from the inside out, we're talking directly to the part of the brain that controls behavior, and then we allow people to rationalize it with the tangible things we say and do. This is where gut decisions come from. You know, sometimes you can give somebody all the facts and your figures, and they say, I know what all the facts and details say, but it just doesn't feel right. Why would we use that verb? It doesn't feel right. Because the part of the brain that controls decision-making doesn't control language. And the best we can muster up is, I don't know, it just doesn't feel right. Or sometimes you say you're leading with your heart or you're leading with your soul. Well, I hate to break it to you, those aren't other body parts controlling your behavior. It's all happening here in your limbic brain, the part of the brain that controls decision-making and not language. What do you think? Interesting, right? The reality that all of us make decisions not necessarily as we want to in logic and reason, but we make decisions with, with gut and, and emotion and desires and, and the why we do things is so important because everybody can explain what they do. I mean, you can explain the concepts of Christianity. You can tell people about the Bible and you can explain the truth that you found in here. You could even explain the how, how to be a Christian. You tell somebody you do bible studies with people you tell them to come to church you go to church you have d times you have your own quiet time and we can explain the how and the why of christianity but do we know the why why do i do d time why do i congregate with a group of people in community why do i read my bible or pray why do i need to get baptized why do i need to give to the why 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 if we don't know the why to all of these things the reality is that at some point we're going to get tired of it. You know, we're going to get tired of these things that we do if we don't know why. And I find myself constantly engaging in conversations where people feel this way about their faith. Where people constantly feel that Christianity is burdensome and it doesn't feel like, like this great, amazing thing that sometimes people talk about. That Christianity is more about duty and obligation. That Christianity is more about what I do and how I behave and not necessarily about this amazing person that we chose him to be our king. You know, I find that most people think of Christianity as duty and not as delight as burden and not as freedom, as expectation and obligation and not as adoration and proclamation. Is that you? Do you and I find ourselves constantly wondering, why do we do this? It's just so tough. And if we want to be rooted in Christ this year, that why has to be answered. Because what if Christianity is actually not about duty, but is more about delight? What if Christianity is about joy, love, meaning, purpose, and pleasure in Christ rather than obligation, 
duty, and expectation. You know, this famous writer named John Piper said that God is the most glorified in us when we are the most satisfied in Him. Think about that. God is the most glorified in you, not when you are praying for 15 hours straight, when you have a 40-day fast, when you baptize 100 people. Don't get me wrong. I think God is glorified in that. And we should do that. We should pray. We should fast. We should evangelize. But this guy, he's saying that God is the most glorified in him when you are the most satisfied in him. When your greatest joy, where your greatest desire, where your biggest pleasure is him, then he'll be the most glorified. Because if we are truly, fully immersed in him, rooted in this desire for him, all of these things will come. We'll start evangelizing and praying and reading our Bibles and fasting and doing all these crazy things, advocating for the poor and those who get marginalized by the system. We will do the things that Jesus wants us to do because we love and desire him so much. Think about the greatest relationships you have. There's a desire you have for this person. And that, that's the thing. We're going to speak today about desire. That Christianity doesn't have to be duty, obligation, and expectation. But it could be desire, delight, and, and adoration. And when that's our why we follow Jesus, things will change. If you're still in Colossians, just go a little bit further to chapter 3. If you would ask Paul, how would you answer this question? Why do you follow Jesus, Paul? He might say something like this. Let's listen to it. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. He says, you have died and your life is hidden within Messiah and God. Did you hear that? When we're, when we're dead in Christ and raised again him in baptism, it says that our life is hidden. We are inside, hidden within Christ. So that when God sees Jesus, when God sees us, he sees Jesus. But listen to the next statement. When Messiah, who is your life, is revealed then you also will be revealed with him in glory. When Messiah, who is your life. Did you catch that? Jesus is not just part of our lives. Jesus is not the most important part of our day, the most important part of our lives. Jesus is our life, or at least it was for Paul. Why does Paul follow Jesus? Maybe he would say because Jesus is life. There's nothing else apart from him. There's death and anguish and all of these other things. I find life when I find Jesus. And if we do not adopt this why that Paul puts here, or the why that Peter puts when Jesus tells him in John chapter 5 and 6, is like, are you guys going to leave also? And Peter is like, where would we go? You have the words of life. If our desire is not Jesus, not just for a part of our lives or for a section of our lives, but for our whole, whole lives, I don't know if it's going to be sustainable enough. I genuinely believe that Christianity and the walk with Jesus is the most amazing, joyful, thrilling, faithful, amazing living that any of us could experience. Don't get me wrong. I do think life is full of trials and pains and there's injustice and evil and we go through the most. But we would go through the most even if Jesus was in the picture. 
Yes, I do believe that Jesus calls us to a radical life of obedience and holiness and purity. And it's difficult to say no to things. But in the long run, what's more difficult? To say no to my lust and self-deny or to go through painful separation and divorce because I couldn't keep my lust in check. At the end of the day, what is more painful and difficult? To to say no to greed and, and to restrain my hands and my eyes from doing things that are corrupt and immoral or to go through the painful anxiety of one wondering if you're going to get caught for the wrong deal, the wrong shady trade in business or at your job or in your relationships. What's harder at the end of the day? I know living with integrity and living for Christ is hard now. But if you play it long enough, it's actually life. That's why Paul says, Christ, Messiah, who is your life? That's the kind of rootedness that we want to achieve as a church. Where we say, no, 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 Jesus is not part of my life. He's not just another board member in my, C, in my company of of decision-making where I include my emotions, my feelings, my desires, my, my dreams, and, and Jesus just has another chair at the table. No, no, no. Jesus is the CEO. Jesus fired everybody else. He is my life. He's in charge of dreams and aspirations. He's in charge of feelings and, and, and logic and, and, and all of these other things. He's in charge of my life. When Christ, who is your life? We read earlier, when you receive Jesus as Lord, correct? But again, the question is, why would we do this? Because he is our life, because he is the greatest desire of our lives. So let me ask you today, who is the greatest desire in your life? Who or what? Because whether we believe it or not, we become like what we worship. And we're all worshiping something or someone today. And it might be Jesus, but it might not be. Whoever that is, we're becoming more and more like him. And whether we like to admit it or not, we cannot have two masters. We could say with our lips that we love Jesus and we desire Jesus, but our heart is following after something else that desires something else. And at some point, it's going to ask us, which one? Jesus can be our greatest desire because I do believe what this guy said that God is the most glorified in us when I and you and we are the most satisfied in him. So here's what I think. I think that being rooted in desire for Christ will produce incredible things. I think living a life that desires to run after Christ, that finds its significant security and satisfaction in God and Christ only is the most meaningful life. Not, not free of trials, not free of injustices, not free of pain, but the most significant, most amazing, most thrilling, most beautiful life in the middle of those trials, in the middle of those pains. I think desire for Jesus has the potential of changing us forever. 
and getting rid of that idea that Christianity is about what not to do so I can get to the good place, but rather Christianity is about who I love and desire and I just want to become more and more like him and that following Jesus is not about duty and obligation, but about love and adoration, about delight an incredible proclamation. This is what Jesus is about, about him. We should make our lives. He is our life. And I know we've taken some time, so just bear with me a few more minutes because there's just a few things that I think this desire for Jesus will produce. I think if we are rooted in desire, this desire will produce joy. We're going to be rooted in joy. In Psalm 16, verse 11, it says that, in the presence of him, in his presence, we there's fullness of joy. There's pleasures forevermore. Joy, joy is a big topic that we can talk about another time, but I think following Jesus brings joy. And I think if we do not have joy in Christ, and if we don't know what that is about, then maybe we're doing this all wrong. I know I have for a long time. And when I find my satisfaction, what I see that there's actual joy in his presence, Man, things change. Another psalm in Psalm 34, we are told to taste and see that the Lord is good, right? Incredible psalm. God is good. Come taste, come experience his goodness. But listen to the prayer that this person makes when they say that God is good. I saw the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. This is Psalm 34, verse 5. Verse 6 says, they, they who looked to him were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard and saved him out all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord, which some people think it could be Jesus, Jesus encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You see, this, this goodness, this experience comes from this prayer of anguish and pain. This poor man cried. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He's talking about people that go through the most, but that do not find the greatest desire or satisfaction anywhere else but in God. And once you find that desire in him, you can say, taste it, taste it and see God is so good. I know it's painful. I know it's hard. I know it feels like he doesn't hear you, but come and taste. Come and taste that there is fullness of joy in his presence. I know it's hard to believe. I know with all that we go through and all of the trials and all of the injustices and all the pain and all of the fear and all of the pandemics and all of the craziness that we go through to find joy seems crazy, but it's available in the presence of God. When was the last time you just poured yourself in worship and adoration that you sought his presence and creation, that you went after him in his word and you said, I'm not leaving until I experience you. And right there and then, the presence of God, the joy just filled within you. And it's unexplainable, but you know it's real. That you know you, you feel different, you think different, you see different. There is joy there. You might not be happy because the situation is bleak, but you're joyful because you know God is there with you. When we're rooted in desire, this desire will produce a rootedness in joy. And when we are rooted in joy, 
you see this desire grow. This desire grow, and then what does this desire do? What, what he does in Psalm 34, in Psalm 16, and everything in the Psalms, it leads you to praise. It's impossible to not. I mean, the psalmist starts in Psalm 34 saying, I will bless Adonai. It starts praising and worshiping God because it's impossible any other way, right? It's totally impossible. All you know is that God is amazing and you want to praise him. And you know, that's the second thing that I think this rootedness and desire will produce a rootedness in praise. Because it's not just Psalms. I think it's our everyday lives, if we're honest. If we're honest, we love to talk about the things that we love. We love to talk about our favorite sports team, or we love to talk about that girl that I'm crushing, or that guy that I really find attractive. We love to talk about our children because we love them. We love to talk about the things that we love, whether it's a hobby, whether it's a person, whether it's an activity. We love doing that. And that's why the psalmists love to praise God, because they love him. You know, C.S. Lewis, in, in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, puts it way better. And he's the one that brought this to my attention. And he says, let me read for you. I have not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that was magnificent? The psalmist is telling everyone to praise God and they're doing all the things that men usually do. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdity denying to us as regard the supreme value that what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else that we value. You see, what C.S. Lewis is saying is that when you love something, when you find value in something, you can't help but to talk about it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't that awesome? When you love going to the beach at Sardinia Bay and seeing the sunset, you invite people and you say, come, check this out. You take pictures and you put it on Instagram because it's awesome. And you just tell people you should experience this. And that's what we'll do if we love and find in Jesus the most amazing satisfaction and desire of our life. We'll just... Not helping. We'll be like, oh man, he's awesome. You should meet him. Come and praise him with me. You see, Paul, Paul reminds us in Colossians, sorry that I'm going all back and forth, but Paul reminds us that, that this, this rootedness will come from being established and built up. And, and next week we're going to talk about that. There's this idea that we need to be rooted in in. in in death, rooted in, 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 in this allegiance to him. Um, and we will talk about that next week. Just want to mention it quickly. I, I think of those old movies, you know, or, or those uh, books or, or series that talk about thrones and, and, and kings and swords and fighting. The people that fight for their king deeply desire that king. I think because one, maybe they feel so loved by this king that they're willing to do anything, but also they love this king so much or they love this person that they're serving so much that they're willing to do anything. Uh, I think about David, you know, and his mighty men, this man that knew David had his back and, and David knew they had his back. Oh, they loved each other so much that when David was thirsty, these guys run to get him a glass of water from the enemy's camp. And they put their lives at risk just for a glass of water. I think that's the kind of 
This, that's the kind of thing that I'll see of our desires for Jesus, that we'll put ourselves in the line, that we'll have this allegiance and this obedience and this loyalty towards him, that we'll just do whatever, what, go wherever, do whatever, go through anything for our king. But that we'll talk about next week. And, and the week after that, we're going to keep on, the, on this this trip of, of rootedness and we'll see that we need to be rooted in, in devotion. And, and devotion is just another way of saying, practically how is our desire being expressed you know there's really smart men that that have put it together in in four different quadrants of that express in christian devotion you know some people say that devotion is expressed in worship and singing and things that we do in community some others say that is expressed in, in social justice you know fighting for the rights of the oppressed fighting for those that the system marginalized fighting for all of these things and that it's important to do that some say that it's expressed in the isolated instances where we meet god and god meets us you know like silence and solitude or fasting or meditating you know all these kinds of things while others think that that our devotion is expressed in in, in learning more about him and getting our hot minds engaged in God's word and learning and, and teaching all of these things to others. But reality is that all of those are just ways, many ways. There's so many more of expressing our devotion to God. And we will fi finish this series talking about that. How do we express that? So don't get me wrong. We'll start with our desire. We'll move on to the depth and then we'll finish with the devotion. But let's circle back to what we're talking about right now. I mean, this is the last point. I'm sorry again that I'm taking so long. Just, just hear me out. And this last point, I'm not sure if, if desire produces this or if this produces desire. I don't know how to explain that. I don't think I should. But I think the important part is that we know that they go hand in hand. And I think whether it's desire that produces it or the other way around, I think there's a rootedness in love that happens at the same time that we are rooted in our desire for him. <laughs> and you know that that's the greatest command, right? That's what Jesus said in Matthew 22. We read the story of Jesus being asked what's the greatest commandment. He said, love God. You know, he quoted the Shema and that's a great lesson for another day, what each one of those words mean. But Jesus says right after that, he said, but the second command, he puts them together and says, if you're going to follow me, if you want to follow God, if you want to love God, you need to love your neighbor. You need to love others. You need to love God's people. And I think that is absolutely true. If anything we do, if this desire for Christ, if this love for Christ is not being expressed or translated in loving others, oh, I think we're messing it up. If anything we do as a church, if any service, if any Bible study, if any D time, if any quiet time is not helping us love God more and love others, man, we're missing the point. Desiring Christ is the most amazing thing we could ever do, absolutely. But it must result in this rootedness of love for others. Think about it. I mean, really think about it. Have you ever loved somebody so much? Let's say that you're really great friends with this person and then you go to the wedding and you see him and her loving each other and then they have a kid and you just despise that child. How do you think your friendship with this person is gonna continue? That you just love them, but you hate their kids. You think that will fly? You think you will maintain that relationship? Or, or turn the example the other way around, you know? I've had many friends 
and, and especially family members that when they have kids, I don't know anything about this kid. I probably haven't even met this kid or her. And, and I just love this little human. I just have this crazy sense of love. When my nephew was born, I had never met him. He could be the most annoying person in the universe, but I just love this little dude. My disciples, I just love their kids. Why? Why do I love them? Because I love them. Because I love the parents. And this love for them, it's translated in love for their kids, for these people that I don't know. Have you ever been introduced to a friend of a friend and then they, like, they just love you because they love your friend? They just love you. They, they know your friend is so wonderful. They've never met you, but they're like, you know what? And the other way around, I mean, I don't know how many other ways to express it, but I think this is true. Desire is translated, it produces, it's rooted in love. And this love is expressed not just between God and I, but between God and us. Do we love the church? Do I love every single member in this family? Do I have this deep compassion and sense and loyalty for each of you? I don't know if we do. I don't know if I do. And I need to repent from that because if I love God, I got to love you. I mean, John, the apostle, keeps on repeating over and over and over again, love one another. I mean, he says that we cannot say we love God if we do not love his kids. It's impossible for God. It's impossible for you and I. It's impossible. You and I wouldn't be friends if you hated my kids or if I hated your kids or if I hated like. But sometimes, man, sometimes loving the people is so hard, right? So we'll stick around and just love God. No, it cannot happen that way. This desire will produce love for others. And I pray our love for each other grows. And I pray our unity amongst one another grows. And I pray we do not only love each other, but we love the world around us that is desperate for love, that is hungry and thirsty for people to love them. This desire must produce that kind of love. That's the goal. And the reality is that these things go together. You, you know the right answer. You know the right information. But sometimes it's hard to put the heart in it, right? It's so, so hard. And we tend to separate things as if heart and head are not together. But let me tell you, I think we've been emphasizing that over and over and over again. It's just not sustainable. If we, if we follow Jesus just because it's the right answer, but not because it's the right God, God hard reaction. They both work together. I was reading this blog post the other day talking about head and heart. And listen to what this, this um, writer says. It's, it's a long quote, but listen quickly. Our heart and head don't have to be in opposition. One doesn't have to wither to let the other grow. Both can mature. Both can be in play in our lives. Both can be of an integrated faith. Both can nourish our whole person and lead us to faithful, productive lives. In fact, the Bible describes them working together in a kind of synergy that leads our whole person to grow. Becoming better readers and livers of the Bible means that we need to let the head and the heart work together. And listen to this. 
It is healthy for us to learn more and more and to let our mind entertain new ideas and complex questions. Absolutely. We must love. We must desire. We must follow Jesus because uh, it makes sense. But listen, feeling similarly, sorry, let me go back. Similarly, it is good for us to embrace emotion and our gut as we grow. Feeling and intuition are just as much reflection of God's image as intellect and reason are. Did you hear that? Let me repeat it. Feeling and intuition are just as much reflection of God's image as intellect and reason are. If we dismiss them, we will be held back in our process of maturing to be more like Jesus. Reason and intellect reflect God's image, but feeling and intuition do so as well. Our desire, our heart has to be for King Jesus. This is a reflection of his image. If we only follow Jesus, if the why we follow Jesus is because it's the right thing to do, it's the right answer, and it's not because we want to, we desire them. If our head and our heart are not working in synergy together, man, we will not be following him forever. I really doubt it. You might will yourself into it. You might want and strive. But if our greatest desire is not Christ, it will be burdensome. It will be obligation. It will be expectation. But once it becomes him, once we're satisfied, once our head and hearts work together, it will produce and it will be rooted in joy, praise, allegiance, devotion, and love. And our desires will be satisfied. And we will not feel burdened. We will adore. We will worship. We will invite others to worship. We will follow. We will do. We will proclaim. We will stay. We will do whatever Jesus calls us to do because we love him. Just like you and I, if we're honest, are willing to do whatever it needs to do for that person that we desire, that we delight in, that person that we love and trust, that person that you will do anything for, that friend of yours, that family member, that child of yours. If we know what it looks like to have a relationship built in desire, we know that we can have that relationship built and rooted in desire with Christ. May we as church, may we as disciples become more and more desires of him until we see the rootedness of what this desire will produce until we see the fruit that this rootedness will bring until we see our lives like Paul says in Colossians 2, established and built up in the faith overflowing with thanksgiving. May you and I live a life not burdened, not obligated, but full of desire, full of delight as we follow King Jesus.